0: a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together.
1: This is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series. I'm here with Aaron Holm today, whose background is in building businesses that transform industries. In 2016, Aaron launched Blockable, a real estate development company, unlocking the efficiencies of technological and financial system advances. Previously, Aaron spearheaded Amazon's first two physical retail businesses, Amazon Go and Amazon Books. Welcome to the Journey of Impact series, Aaron. Thank you, Gino. So tell us a little bit about um, how you're meeting the moment uh, with Blockable being based in the Northwestern area and founder of an impact company, um, especially in housing, which is very relevant to what's going on in terms of the coronavirus. How, How are you and Blockable meeting the moment?
0: Well, the moment certainly changed things very quickly. Right. So the moment, uh, the moment, you know, turned, turned the world on its head a little bit and, uh, you know, gave us some insight into what we were doing and, uh, in relation to what was going on in the world. So first, I mean, blockable, uh, is a, a vertically integrated real estate developer. So we build housing, uh, and we do so with a lot of technological advances and engineering that we've done to create a building system that we can manufacture, uh, which we then use to create multifamily housing, whether that's market rate or not for profit. So my partner, co-CEO Nelson Del Rio comes out of, you know, the world of development and and finance and, uh, and real estate. And I come out of the world of sort of technological innovation and we put the company together. Um, We both come from similar backgrounds, which is, you know, we both grew up sort of low income, single mother households, um, and both got to a point in our careers where we really wanted to, you know, change the way development works, come at it from very different angles. But that's the sort of common theme that both of us have. Um, And we'd made, you know, we started Blockable in 2016 and we'd made a lot of advances in the engineering. So we'd prototype, we'd build buildings, we'd built ADUs, and then we'd built connected buildings, single story. And so we'd, we'd done a lot of the technological work to get through all of the regulatory and the finance and the approval process and everything that you need to do to actually build something that's legally considered real estate. Um, and so we had been in a heavy engineering, heavy development phase, really perfecting the building system, perfecting the financial model, the business model, getting everything together that we needed to do to be to be fully integrated, vertically integrated developers, which means we can control all the way from dirt to uh, to completion. Um, and obviously, you know, part of that is the the work that we're doing internally to engineer to create a universal building system that applies to any type of site. But then the other part is obviously uh, related to the real estate market. So whatever's happening in the real estate market and Nelson and I had been talking for a while about, you know, what we saw coming as a real estate recession, um, and looking at all of the fundamentals that would change in a real estate recession and really, you know, thinking that those would be ideal circumstances for us to really move quickly into. Uh, and then, you know, the whole fire started to hit it and then those things just got accelerated. So, you know, on the one side, the, it put more. We put much more. Um, we accelerated a lot of our engineering efforts uh, so that we can we can get everything that we want into our building system in terms of capabilities, um, so that we're ready to move. But then also, it created you know, uh, for instance, we had we had one of our buildings that we've been using as a showcase building at our Seattle office, and we got a call from the um, uh, Washington State Department of Health, and uh, they were setting up a quarantine facility in centralia uh and this was early that you know people didn't really know what the numbers were really going to be right so the early stage in washington state it hit earlier than it had hit other areas and in early days everybody just saw the logarithmic uh math and so you started seeing it to happen you're like oh man like this is you start to realize well i think washington state we realized some things really early on which was it doesn't really matter what your number is today it matters like what's the growth rate because we had seen it day after day, week after week, the numbers were just going up and up and up. So there was a stage early days where the Department of Health and the state were really scrambling trying to figure out what is what needs to be the scale of the response here. And they were trying to pull in resources from wherever they could find them. And so they reached out to us and asked us if we had built things that we could contribute because they were, you know, they were bringing in RVs and different things to quarantine people, but they didn't have anything that was accessible for people in wheelchairs. And so they got in touch with us and we had a building and we said, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll get it lined up for you. We arranged, you know, the GC and the transport to be able to crane the building up and put it on site. We said, look, we're not going to charge you for it. This was a demo building that we were, we had there anyway, use this for as long as, as long as you need to. Uh, It's going probably going to go to the national renewable energy lab after that anyway, so that they can run some testing with us on it. So we just said, great, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give it to you. Um, So that was, you know, organizing uh, people to go and work in, in a quarantine area. No one really knows, you know, okay, are there quarantine people there? What is the nature of the, city? it's funny because, you know, if you think about it today, you know, as of today, people have a much more mature understanding uh, about what's happening with the virus, what the potential implications are, what the right things to do about it are, uh, where the real risks are around, you know, things like you know the number of ventilators, the number of ICU units, the number of things like that. So people have really narrowed in on what do we really need to be focused. What did the real response be? But in early days they weren't. Early days it was people were scrambling. They were like, okay, let's 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 figure out what we have to do. Um, and I think that that transported itself into companies as well. And Nelson and I, you know, we were talking about it yesterday. We were on a call with an investor. Um, and they had a a lot of their portfolio companies on the call and they were talking about some of the things that you should be doing. We realized like we had done all of this really early days. Mostly we've been through multiple recessions. So we'd been through, you know, I was running in New York in 2008, 2009, and all of a sudden the bottom fell out of the economy. When I first, you know, first company I ever kind of started in the States after coming from Canada was right at the end of 2001, right? So, uh, you know. I've I've, Nelson and I both have been through recessions and kind of see some patterns of things that you should do really respond early, figure out what you want to do, do it right away. Um, You know, take, you know, have hard conversations, do the the things that need to be done and quickly set up uh, everybody involved to be successful. Right. And very quickly move towards a new strategy. So, you know, obviously a lot of business changes, a lot of human changes. um, And then I think as you you and I were talking about before, it's also always it's just such an opportunity to step into uh, step into what's happening, uh, you know, removing all the stories about what's going on, but really being into a new reality, uh, and 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 moving through it and being very conscious and aware of what's really happening, um, not trying to not trying to sugarcoat it, not trying to make new stories up, but really just being uh, in the moment as to what's happening. At times like this, I find is just really important. Because the belief systems and lenses and things don't necessarily apply right now.
1: Aaron, how have you stepped into that reality and uh, checked your um, or checked one's uh, proclivity to create a new narrative? I mean, how like I mean, how are you checking that tendency? And then, as a result, what type of visioning? has been growing out of this that might not have occurred three months ago for you? I think, well, I think there's probably two, two big ways. Um, so one
0: is I, I've gone through the process before of, and st- always go through the process of, of really challenging my own belief systems and my own narratives about anything. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, if you've ever done the work of going back and looking at, you know, how you grew up, you're, what your belief systems were around that, and really kind of getting underneath them and challenging them—that's a really vital process. Because if you've done that, it can really make you skeptical of of things that are in front of you, because you know that stories are stories, and you know that um, you know we all have we all have tendencies and patterns, and and being able to see those things uh, gives you the the opportunity and the ability to then challenge them in, in the immediate term. Um, my, one of my big ones is I grew up in a pretty chaotic environment. I mean, we were just constantly moving, um, different people were around, like moving and settling with different families and sort of, you know, moving in with a boyfriend or a different boyfriend. Um, so I kind of grew up in a pretty chaotic environment. Uh, and so there's a tendency in me that when chaos hits, I, I kind of like tend to be comfortable in it. (laughs) I tend to like, it seems to be something I'm like, Oh, you know, this, I can navigate this and this is familiar. When things are stable, uh, I get concerned because when things are stable, that's usually an indicator that things are about to, about to go sideways because <laughs> that was just, and that's my, own, that's my own sort of pattern and it doesn't, but, you know, I think coming into what we're in now, uh, part of me, I think just through, through having gone through a lot of the sort of exploration and looking at my own patterns and uh, belief systems. Um, was really to, to see it as an opportunity, to not um, to not try and apply stories to it, to to really be in the moment with what's happening, and to really experience it and live it in a very tr- true way. Because um, I it's very very natural to, and I think that's what happens. That's what's happening right now. It's in these moments. think this is what happens where every in a certain way. Something knocked knocked the foundation out. And now people are, a lot of people are trying to figure out, okay, what's the story I now want to apply to this? And then I'll operate from that any period for six months, a year, two years, however however long it makes sense. And I'm really not, I'm really consciously not doing that where I don't know, because the truth is we don't know. I don't know how this is going to unfold. I don't know where it's going to go. All I know is what's happening in the moment each day. And it's very important stuff. Like we're dealing with staff. We're dealing with people who we work with. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of nervousness out there. And I feel how I move through that is actually very important. And and the way that I where I'm coming from in all of my conversations, whether it's with someone at the grocery store or whether it's um, with someone who's on our team or whether it's with an investor, any of those conversations, I need to be coming from a very deep place um, because it's important right now.
1: And out of that deep place, do you see or feel a potential uh, visioning of the world that um, you may have had, but maybe it crystallized or maybe there was some like, as a result of this space creation and this ability to really just succumb to the now and and the power of the now. um, When you not only look at your life and blockable or the interrelationship between them, it's like, and you mentioned a little bit like you're plowing a lot into engineering right now um, because you're going to see this opportunity that may have been accelerated for you and the team. But then even take it one step further, like what does culture potentially look like as a result of this if we steer it uh, potentially in a more humane, uh, environmentally conscious way?
0: Well, I think, I think it's the opportunity to manifest um, right? So it's the opportunity. And I think one of the things that happened with uh, with this reset is before there was a lot of noise, right? And we knew, we knew certain truths, right? Like we knew things were, there's a lot of things that just weren't working, right? And particularly in the world that we work in, which is housing, right? So developing housing and very consciously targeted at developing housing, forcing the market to work, right? Because the market doesn't work. If the market worked, housing wouldn't. So we looked at it fundamentally and structurally from the bottom up all the way from how is housing built to how is it financed to how is it regulated to how is it incentivized all of that into a business model that we looked at and said, this is how the market should work, right? We're not trying to put a band-aid on the previous market and selling uh, a widget, right. That's going to go into it and provide, you know, profit for an existing incumbent. We're saying, no, 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 this is, the market should work like this. Now that's a big thing to push on. Um, so what comes into a scenario like we're in now, though, is a lot of the pressure points that were there previously are now really exposed. So if you look at, you know, particularly with housing, I mean, people who were vulnerable before are now either on the streets or, or on their way to being on the streets. People who were not so vulnerable before are now vulnerable. So, if you look at you know where the where housing works and where it doesn't, it's when it's when things aren't optimal so even even before we went into this, the market was peaking, people making a lot of money, everybody's doing well in those types of scenarios, the incumbent industry has no interest in things changing. The incumbent industry is like we're doing fine. We control this whole world. Why would we want it to change where everybody everybody's doing fine. everybody's making a lot of money so we're like you know, hammering away at it, right? Like, you know, me and Nelson just plowing our heads through that whole scenario. We're like, we don't care. This is how this is how it should be. This is how it should work. So all of that just got thrown up in the air where, um, you know, all of those baseline assumptions are now challengeable, right? All of those assumptions are now challengeable. And as people emerge from, and because there, there are going to be multiple stages to this, right? There'll be healthcare crisis and then there'll be an economic crisis. And the economic crisis will be, you know, who knows how long it'll take because who knows how long the healthcare crisis will really last. Could go a year, could go longer. Like we, it's still, that that remains to be seen. In all of that though, there's the opportunity to question very sort of, you know, long held fundamental assumptions about how the housing market works, how it's financed, um, what kind of projects get built, why do they get built where they built, who gets to live there, what, what do they cost, all those things. So for us, what happened when, Um, the crisis started to hit is everything just became very clear, right? So everything that was previously, you know, there's a lot, you could push on it in a lot of different ways. You knew that it was going to be, you know, you were really pushing it. It was Sisyphean, right? You're really pushing up the rock up against up the mountain. Um, And then everything just became super clear because no, no, now we know exactly where the areas are that we need to focus. We need to not do that anymore, not do that anymore. Hyper-focus on getting this ready to go. There's going to be a period of pretty much, you know, nothingness, right? There'll be a period of, of just, just damage control. Like, okay, okay, what's happening? Let's make sure everybody stays alive. And then let's make sure that we understand what just happened. And then let's make sure that we are sort of figuring out what's going to come next. We have a pretty clear vision of, of what we think the market should look like coming out of this in terms of how housing development is done. Um, You know, the market generally doesn't spend anything on R and D we've, we've spent four years, millions and millions of dollars on R and D on a system that is the enabling system for housing should be developed. Um, so looking at how development should work, how R and D should be a key aspect of developing housing, how the finance should work um, and what it means to take, you know, take real estate from, from land into completed housing. Uh, how do you act, how do you really set up a, a market and a structure that can scale and, and can function? So, you know, we looked at it very early as it was happening and things just, it's just like, you know, taking all the dust off the mirror, right? And then you're looking at it and then it's just, everything's very clear. You're suddenly, suddenly it's all very clear what needs to be done. It didn't, it didn't take a lot of, uh, deep intellectual, you know, work. It was just all very clear and it's all stuff that we've been planning for. And then, you know, everything in the market, the conditions all change. And so then it's very clear what you need to do next.
1: That, um, that willingness to uh, keep sharing your uh, belief in how it should work versus the way it's currently working, um, obviously, there's a lot of inertia in the system while things are going well. You address that. But what is it internally that keeps you going in the midst of people either just either just sort of shaking their heads like, why, why are we going to go in that direction? That's, that's not scalable. This is working. Potentially, that might have been a comment. Um, or just sort of paying, you know, just for half listening and likely people are going to be, uh, open to, uh, listening more to, I mean, your new system as a result of this potential collapse. What I'm interested in is like, it's been years that you've been beating that drum and I'm interested in what keeps you beating that drum. Like, what is it? Is it something in your childhood? Is it something you're currently experiencing? Is there just some empathy out there in general or in you? that really wants to um, address uh, people's situation? Or is there just like a part of you that just likes some people telling you no, and it's like, no, I can do that. That's another type of thing. I'm just sort of under, I just want to know the whole composite of how how you keep getting up and saying yes to what the world is largely saying no to.
0: Well, I mean, I think the, the first key is, is it the right drum? right? So you don't want to, you don't want to be beating on the right drum, wrong drum. And you can for years, right? If you have a certain makeup, I have that makeup. Nelson has that makeup. Um, but we don't, we we know it's the right drum. That's the thing. It's like, we're not, you know, this isn't random. It's not, it's not like we just picked something and we said a bunch of stuff. And so now, oh, well, we better go do it. <laughs> it's, it's not like that. I mean, we, um, we've put this together very intentionally and it's, it's the way that it's structured and the way that it's put together is to solve a problem. And the problem is housing and how housing is, how housing is, is, uh, how the housing market works. Um, and that was, that comes out of, you know, I think for both of us, for me, for sure, you know, I've done different business activities and my makeup is to pound away and solve hard problems and, and really make new things real. Right, like Brian Eno has the best best approach that I've ever heard, which is you, know, you 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 work on things because you wish they existed, right? So you 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 build things because you wish that it existed in the world, and then you make it happen. So, you know, we definitely have that approach. So the first thing is really it is the right it is the right approach, and the fact that a lot of incumbent people um, are resistant is a, is really a good sign, right? It's generally, because you can you can basically take say two very clear things like one, does the market work? No, it doesn't. There's, there's no way that you can possibly say the market works. And then two, you know, are the people who are generally incumbents in that market resistant to change? Yes. Like in this world that we're working in, probably bigger than just about anyone else, right? In terms of like the reasons to change because of how well people do off of it and no one, and that's just human nature. No one, no one uh, who's made a living and built a career on something Wants to challenge the fundamental assumptions of why it's there, and very few people have the um, you know the will to look at it and 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 destroy it and destroy it for something that would be better. That's very rare that people do that. So then on the other part of the question though, which is why and what about personal makeup might do that? And I think this is this is something I think Nelson and I both have, and I see it in him, um, which is like when you grow up with nothing, right? Everything is telling people that you can do something that they're telling you that you can't (laughs) it's the entire process, right? So everybody, everybody who you grew up with in your neighborhood, you know, they don't have high expectations. Nobody's, nobody's thinking you're going to amount to anything, right? People are like your, your, your level gets set at, could you be a, you know, could you do this job? Could you, you know, are there jobs in the world that you could go and hold that would then give you the ability to have a life and pay rent and exist? That's the bar. You're basically like, could you do that and not be on welfare, not be in jail, Can you avoid those things, which is where a lot of people go and just exist in the world? You do that, that's successful, right? So from the beginning, if you have like any type of, um, and the things people, you know, when you grow up in neighborhoods like that, it's how everybody's, it's the same. It's the same as any other neighborhood. It's just that some of the conditions and the access to opportunity is not the same. Everything else is the same. There's people who are just as bright. There's people who are just as ambitious, people who are just as talented, and then You know, so that then the world throws a whole bunch of stuff in their way, and it creates obstacles. But if you if you grow up in an environment like that, and you figure it out, you're not worried about people telling you you can't do something, right, or telling you that something's a bad idea, because none of none of the none of the orthodoxy that you look at it it doesn't resonate. None of it resonates. You look at it and you say, well, all of that, all of all of what I see in front is basically everything that sort of um, was an obstacle early days, they're not, these aren't my friends. You know what I mean? These aren't like, you know, systems that I think are high functioning. You know, I think that in, in a lot of cases, there are systems that that need to be really fundamentally reevaluated and thought about. And then it's then it's a matter of what's your lens in doing that. And you can see, you can then look at it and say, well, my, my lens is, everything is about money, which is, which is one way to look at it. And you can be effective, but it doesn't get to the deeper part of it. And the thing that I realized in, you know, years ago, was just my makeup is I'm going to work. I just work really hard and I love working on whatever I'm working on. So I just have to be really careful about what I choose. Right. Mm-hmm. So I have to make sure that the thing that I choose to work on really needs to, to be something that I'm really interested in solving. Um, and that, that looks at the sort of the question that you're asking, which is how does that connect in with like you personally, you, uh, in terms of motivation, your background, what are the things that are important to you? That's where it all sort of comes full circle. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the drive to do it has always been there beating on the right drum though, is the exact, is the exact problem because you can, you take some people who are so talented. This is something I I talked to a lot of people about. You can take people who are so talented and they're working on things that just don't matter. (laughs) They're working on things that are just like, you know, either intellectually interesting, um, or they're just about money. And you can convince yourself that anything is worth it. Right. Um, so the question is like, how honest are you? How, how is it worth it? Is it real? And can you keep coming back to that as a guiding principle? Uh, Cause then on the other side of it, it's not, it's not just, it's not just that um, people are going to say no to you. It's that people are going to take your legs out and they're going to attack you and they're going to try and destroy you. So it's not just that they don't, they they don't want to say nice things about what you're doing, right? It's that they're actively going to try to destroy it because it's a threat. So when you got to that point, then you know you're onto something. When you get to the point where like people are people are spending money to try to take you out. Then you're like, oh wow, okay,
1: <laughs> this is good. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if there is. Um, are you really into solving the housing problem, or is it even potentially bigger? that housing is really a public health issue, potentially. Um, and if it's a public health issue, it's actually bigger than a housing. I know you're working at an engineering level to work on the housing component, and you're working on and, and the systems integration to get something started from scratch to actually something that can be lived in. But let's look at that as one module of another potential module what might the vision be for, for Blockable to actually participate in the public health conversation and dialogue, which is even a bigger potential, sort of bigger component, a bigger potential for, um, for the work you're doing? I'm of curious on, maybe you've already had conversations in that direction. I believe you have. And just want to get a sense of what, like, the ideal vision would be Um, for you and when just sort of feeling it out and hearing these conversations and watching what's going on and how language may be blocking people's ability to see housing as a public health issue or public health issue as a housing issue. And so maybe you can sort of connect some of the dots for us.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can, you can get technical about it. I mean, the thing is people don't see, people generally don't see housing as a system, right? And so they don't generally see you know housing the one of the primary issues is that housing needs to be an adaptive elastic system but it is not right housing needs to be responsive and it needs to adapt to changing demographics changing realities it cannot and does not because of the, the way that it has traditionally functioned so it's not so much that i look at it the other way which is housing is actually at the base of all of those issues education health, um, wealth, opportunity, everything. Housing, housing is the basis. And I, this is lived experience. I know this, right? So I know this from experience that that's, that is the reality. If you're, and it all comes from, you know, what we see people growing up in. If you're growing up where you have, you don't know where you're going to be sleeping, your home life is not stable. It's not healthy. A whole bunch of risk factors like that. You can forget about school school's going to be really hard, really complicated to get in there and actually commit yourself and devote time and, and get good grades and really do well in school. And then you can look at all the health, health things that come out of that. I mean, just the, the studies are out there. They're, they're all over the place. If you look at just the, the relationship between, you know, unstable, um, poor housing, and then what happens in terms of outcomes regarding education, um, you know, uh, healthcare, all those things. So we, we see that, but we don't, we don't look at it as having to enable any individual one of them. If we, if we do what we're doing right, right? So if we, you know, vertically integrate the housing process so that we're not dependent on the existing structure, right? We can go as fast as we want. We can scale as big as we want. We control the, the development process. We control the manufacturing process. We control the finance process. We control the whole thing. And by doing that, we remove obstacles to scale. Right? So then you can really think about, OK, if we can develop at a different cost point, that makes the work that we're doing financeable better than the market. That means that our projects are a better return than what you would see else in the market, because we're the only ones leverage all the engineering that we've done to hit price points that the market can't hit. We're just a better a better investment. So on the finance side, we can work all that by doing that. It lets you build in places where other things couldn't get built. So, and then also by recognizing the reality in housing, which is that you have a market rate housing industry and you have a not-for-profit housing industry and that they're very different. They get financed differently. They have different realities. So by creating a structure for us, creating a structure that allows us to operate in both worlds, right? Using the same fundamental R&D innovation, leveraging that same efficiency and cost advantage into those two different markets, it lets us um, sort of operate in the real world of housing and then, you know, what the what? Because the issue really is uh, opportunity, right? So the ultimate issue, the issue that enables education, that enables healthcare, that enables all—it's opportunity. It's that layer of opportunity. And opportunity, early days, is created by by housing. And you can look at disparities, you know, in income. You look at disparities uh, geographically, demographically. It's all ultimately opportunity and access that layer of opportunity. If you have opportunity outcomes in education and healthcare they change dramatically but it ha- it, ha- it happens at the lowest possible level if you try and push it top down if you come from healthcare right and say how does how does housing impact healthcare what can we do you can't get to the answer right if you come from education and say what can we do in housing right? To improve what we're seeing in our education data. And we worked with a lot of folks, you know, Kaiser Permanente, different groups that are working at the healthcare layer. They see all of this in their data. They see poor housing, they see homelessness, and they're spending money, but they're spending it top down. And so the answer, right, if you're in education or if you're in uh, healthcare, the answer for you, if let's say you're, you're a large healthcare provider, you have lots of land, you have lots of money, right? you still can't solve the problem. I mean, mean, imagine that You, you still have no ability to solve the problem because you have to hand that money over to an industry, right? Who knows exactly what they're gonna do with it. And it's going to be the same answer coming back every time. And so, you know, if you're looking at the fundamental issue, let's say you take the Bay Area, the fundamental issue, what is the price per door to build new housing? That's it, that's the issue. The rest of it all flows out of other things, but that's the issue. I've got this much money, I've got this much land. Okay, what's the cost per door? If you can't change that dynamic, you can't change anything. And so, the the market as it exists, whether you're a not-for-profit or you're a healthcare provider or an education provider, you go to the market, you say, "Go build me something." The cost is the cost because none, all the all the variables are the same. So for us, you have to start it from the bottom up, which means how do you how do you, how and why do you develop ground-up, you know, housing? Where's it going to matter the most? Multi-family, middle density, infill. Uh, those are the types of projects that have the, the greatest impact. Because you can take the education part of it, you can take the healthcare part of it. And then actually, the biggest one is climate. Because if you look at the, the, the totality of impact for climate in housing, it's enormous. You take, um, so, so break it out into, into three different components. First component is the construction process what does it take to build new housing? 550, 600 million tons of material waste every year in the US stuff thrown into the garbage because of how we build, because everything's one-off site-built construction. Then you take um, buildings, right, which are 40% of emissions globally. So buildings are 40% of climate emissions globally, just in terms of how they operate, how wasteful they are, because of how they're designed and built and operated. Uh, And then you take location. So you take where housing gets built. And typically what, what we've been doing in the U.S. is building just further and further and further out. So if, you, if you're if you income restricted, if you don't have, you know, the ability to buy or or rent close to your work, right, you push out further and further. So people build track homes. They build suburban developments farther and farther and farther away. People are driving an hour or two hours to get to where they live. Those are vehicle miles traveled. You think about the emissions that are happening through vehicle miles traveled. So if you take those three things together, how we, if we manufacture, which abhors waste, right, so you, you drastically reduce the amount of waste during the manufacturing process, which we're working with NREL on, on measuring that, then you create zero energy, uh, home energy, uh, multifamily units, which we're working on validating that process. And then you locate them in places that are actually closer to where people work. I mean, climate is, you know, it's not, it's not super intuitive, but it will be, which is the way that we do industries in this case, housing, the effect on climate means that you need to, and this goes all the way back to what you were saying earlier, need to, that market needs to work differently. Like we're not trying to fix the current market. We're creating a new market, totally, totally different process. And it needs to be that level of of uh, approach to do anything meaningful because you can't just, just um, you know, kind of moving the deck chairs around on the other side isn't going to do it. So that's, you know, as as an enabler, all of that leads to that idea of opportunity, though, which to me is the biggest one. If you can, if you can, you do address, you address climate, you address health, you address the, the bigger one is, is access to opportunity and housing is exactly that. It is, it is the leveler.
1: Wow. I love that response. I think you did connect the dots to the third power. I mean, that was a lot more than what um, I anticipated. I'm here with Aaron Home, who launched Blockable, a real estate development company that unlocks the efficiencies of technological and financial systems advances. He's based in Seattle, uh, Washington. And again, thanks so much, Aaron. We really appreciate hearing, hearing your story and um, I really enjoy the work you're doing and equally as much is the way that you talk about the work that you're doing. Thanks, Gino. It was cool to talk.
0: Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.